Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Blade Runner. I need your deck. This is a bad one. The worst yet. There was an escape from the off-world colonies two weeks ago. Six replicants. Three male, three female. They slaughtered 20... A Blade Runner's job is to hunt down replicants. Manufactured humans you can't tell from the real thing. What's this? Roy Batty. Probably the leader. There was just one outfit making replicants that superhuman. The Terrell Corporation. Mr. Deckard, Dr. Eldon Terrell. I don't get it, Tyrell. Commerce is our goal here at Tyrell. More human than human is our motto. I was looking for six replicants in a city of 106 million people. You ever see this girl, huh? Never seen a Buzzlove. What I didn't know was they were looking for me. No, they won't. I'm going to cut that trailer short because it's one of the worst trailers I've ever seen. No wonder nobody wanted to see this film. I suggest you check it out on YouTube. It is a disaster of poorly conveyed themes, complete lack of ability to highlight the strengths, actively misleading the audience, and I think this comes down to the fact that the trailer company didn't know what the fuck they were doing, and at the same time plodding through every beat and moment of the movie so nothing would be surprising. It's terrible. The trailers for Blade Runner 2049 are a billion miles better. So let's just have that sound instead, shall we? We are here tonight on the eve of release of Blade Runner 2049, the sequel most people didn't know they wanted, to talk about Ridley Scott's original. With us are Neil Taylor, who may or may not be a Nexus 6. Neil, what do you think? Do you flip the tortoise over? I can neither confirm nor deny anything. I will tell you, I've seen things you people couldn't imagine. <laughs> like the uh, work print version of this. <laughs> yes, I was going to watch that at one point. And Colin Miller of the Cinema Cephalopod, a basic pleasure model. Hello, I'm ready for my boy comp test. And we're going to be discussing the final cut here. That was like the number one question people were asking. You know, which one are you going to talk about? And it's like, you know, are you going to talk at extreme length about the various cuts? No. Final cut's the one that, you know, is the best. So I feel like only a non-fan would ask that question. I, well, that, that's, that's, that sounds like gatekeeping, and we would never do that. But it's, it's, it, it, ultimately, it's irrelevant. The final cut's, you know, really solid. They're, they're, you know, you may have a preference. Like Guillermo del Toro, whom I love cannot yes. watch anything but his laserdisc version of the original theatrical cut with the voiceover and i love del toro and i respect his opinion but that's madness <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but you know, this you... film has the most cuts out of any film out there. So yeah, we're going to be discussing the final cut, and we will briefly discuss the other cuts at the end of the show. Also, while we could spend 90 minutes talking about whether Deckard is a replicant or not, we're not oh. going to. It's uh, at least not till later. It's left ambiguous, and as such, it deserves a short segment again at the end, rather than a dominating share in proceedings. Because otherwise, we'll be going back to this theory over and over again. And like you know, not, like to a lot of people, it's a theory. To Ridley Scott himself, it's like fact. Um, to the original writers, it most definitely was not fact. So and Harrison, yeah, and indeed Harrison and a lot of other people who worked on the film. But like, we'll <laughs> talk about that later because, like I said, it's it's less important than all the rest of the other stuff. Blade Runner is a film noir. It shares many of the hallmarks of that genre, which was originally emerged as an antithesis for mainstream cinema. Uh, in film noir, the heroes do bad things. The villains are relatable. There is almost always a cop or a private eye, almost always a job for him to do and pain for him to go through to get to the end. He may not even survive it. There's also almost always a femme fatale who is sexy and dangerous to him. But in Blade Runner's case, once we hit the final beats, the hero is a hell of a lot less heroic. The femme fatale is vulnerable and genuinely in need of help. And the arch villain develops virtue and challenging philosophy the tropes start working backwards and while the core body of the story is fairly straightforward man hunts criminals man kills criminals man unable to kill final criminal there are themes imagery and sound in here which are a great deal more profound and challenging than its confines suggest it's a rough ride but ultimately extraordinary and despite its cold reception at its original release this is why Blade Runner has endured and the technical majesty and vision of the future is why it has maintained its place as one of the most influential films of the 20th century. Before we go on, I'm just going to run down roughly what Blade Runner had to go up against when it was originally released. In uh, 1982 when it came out, The Road Warrior came out in May, Poltergeist came out on June 4th, Wrath of Khan also on June 4th, E.T. the Extraterrestrial June 11th, The Thing June 25th. Which was, which was also a flop. Yeah, and Blade Runner also June 25th on the same day. We said it back when we did The Thing podcast. And The Dark Crystal came out in December of 82. A whole bunch of other really great movies came out in that year, but Tootsie, An Officer and a Gentleman, Rocky Three, Porky's 48 Hours, Tron, First Blood, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Cat People, Porky's, The 
Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, and Annie. So yeah, some movies were successful without being great, and some were great without being successful. But people saw E.T. and Poltergeist and they were thrilled with this Spielbergian vision of both the supernatural and aliens. You know, the, the, the Wrath of Khan was giving us that it was advancing Star Trek and it making, reinvigorated and Star reinvigor Trek. Yeah, it, it made Star Trek fun for all those people who were like, yeah, I, I did see the motion picture, it wasn't as good as The Empire Strikes Back. Um, and then, you know, so, so this Blade Runner comes out and it, it, it befuddles people, it depresses people. It doesn't do much money at all. It gets Ridley Scott in trouble. And it, it people were indifferent to it. And this theatrical cut, you know, you know, knocked around in cinemas for a while. And it wasn't until the director's cut that people were like, now this, this is what Blade Runner should have been. And that was released in, in what, the, the early 90s. I'll just double check that. Is it 99? No, it's earlier than that. Oh, wait, wait. earlier than that. Uh, if you uh, like in the early nineties when uh, we were um, first getting into videos, uh, they released oh, yeah, yeah, The yeah. Abyss and Die Hard Two were some of the first like proper widescreen VHS tapes. And obviously the, these these things were coming out on laserdisc, but like this was for people who you know were way beyond just standard at home entertainment. Um, Apparently there's a work print prototype version in 1982. Yep. Then there's a San Diego sneak preview version in 1982. Then did they show that at Comic-Con? Then there's uh, uh, the U.S. theatrical release. That's the third cut. Then the international theatrical release. Then there's the U.S. broadcast version. Then there was the director's cut in 92. So that was, Ooh, like I, I say, around the time when uh, Aliens uh, director's cut was coming out on VHS. Then the final cut didn't emerge until way later, like um, 15 years later in 2007. I, I would hope that the final cut really is it. And, and like I said, we're reviewing that one, well, we're analysing that one in particular, because it's, it's, there is a confidence about this one, and as far as the now well-established Ridley Scott's concerned, this is the film that he wanted to do. I also think the pacing works much better in this, this particular cut as well. Yeah. It's uh, it's it's pretty um, it's it's more trim and less languorous. It feels at least like, like more and um, but also longer. Believe it or not, it is. Right. We're going to cover five main areas before we start talking about those uh, those contentious issues, such as the differences between the various cuts and whether Deckard is a replicant or not. And more specifically, it's not so much whether De Deckard is a replicant or not, but what observing that as a fact does to change the movie. But we're going to look at the look of the film, the sound of the music, the performances, the themes, and the problems. I could have put the story in there, but ultimately the story is subservient to the themes. It's so much more about what it's about, and specifically than what goes on, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, it's 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 pretty straightforward. It's it's, it's, it's a gumshoe detective story. It is really straightforward as a story. Mm. You summed up when he says it's manhunts villains. Yeah. It literally is that. It, it doesn't get... It gets a whole lot deeper than that without the story being a whole lot deeper than that. And, and while I said, I compared it to, uh, yeah, well, I, I, I held it up to the uh, black mirror of film noir uh, and said that, you know, that there are various conventions defied. A lot of film noir, noir is defying conventions. It is making you feel uh, uneasy and uh, at the same time drawn in. And that's, that tends to be what uh, film noir does best. So we shall begin with the look of the film. 
It is a, a vivid realization of a city. It follows on from Metropolis in terms of laying down this is a massive futuristic dystopia and making that the centerpiece of its movie. The city itself is the most important character. It, the, the way this film looks when it shows you the cityscapes is, is honestly, it is iconic. So much so that I would say one Mr. George Lucas may have borrowed elements for, say... Coruscant, yeah. Coruscant. You know, watching this back and it's like, oh yeah, they really did borrow heavily from this. And you know what I really like about... This feels like a very believable future. You can see our world as it's now heading towards this particular look. All right, maybe we won't have the flying cars. But, you know, with the, the, the massive billboards and things like that, you know, you see these themes come back in things like uh, was it Minority Report that had the billboards, oh, yeah. billboards and things like that you know uh, Minority Report also written by Philip K. Dick one of the things that I think at least for me um, definitely puts Blade Runner's um, dystopia above Coruscant is that you never really get a sense that the people of Coruscant are actually suffering or the dense population of aliens and humans actually has any negative effects in the city, which is a clear theme in Blade Runner. You get these dense, you know, populated streets. And even from the outset, you see, you know, the first shot is of the cityscape and you see these smoky towers, you know, of this of this industry. And you, you get a sense that this is a working animal. This entire city is living and breathing, whereas Coruscant to me felt very stale and just like car upon car in the city traffic that would just immediately all crash into each other. And yet in Blade Runner, there's maybe one or two like law enforcement and maybe the rich people who could afford a flying car. Hmm. Coruscant doesn't say anything about us, but the city in Blade Runner says a hell of a lot. I'm sure you could find things to extrapolate from Coruscant, but there's a very deliberate authorial conveying of this is where we're headed in terms of how impersonal everything is how grimy and how you know everyone's crammed in together and yet totally isolated people just wander the streets and there's waste flying everywhere and we haven't taken care of the planet and so there's a piece of music in this called memories of green and it mm. seems like uh, you know, especially with the, the the happy ending in the theatrical cut when they drive out to the country and it looks like they're shining. <laughs> it's it's like Seven, where in the city itself is this grimy hellscape we've made and fashioned around ourselves, and it's at the same time it's it expresses as us as a civilization, and the green is everything that we've left behind and is at the sides and margins and like would would gladly uh, wipe out to get some more city in there. And it's actually kind of odd because I don't think it's ever touched on in the film itself. But which is it's not. it's meant to take place after the Third World War, the Tertiary mm. War, is it? It's called. So yeah, there isn't actually yeah. a lot of green in Hawaii. Everything's packed in there. Did they? Uh, I, I believe, as far as I can understand, replicants were used as uh, soldiers in in this yes. Third World War. Right. That actually leads to another completely different film uh, that was written by uh, at least one of the guys who wrote Blade Runner. We're going to talk about Soldier now, are you we? You are! Well done! <laughs> okay, right, hold on. Soldier movie. Let's keep it quick. I really want to keep this quick, because Soldier is not a film that's really worth talking about. It's unfortunately not, and it's a weird 
you could almost call it a side quill where it, it's like if you followed one of these Nexus machines, hmm. sort of. It was written by David Webb Peoples, uh, and he uh, co-wrote uh, Blade Runner. And uh, it actually has, if you watch very carefully at the beginning, it's flicking through various war scenarios on a computer screen with, with various uh, labels. And, and you can see Shoulder of Orion and Tannhauser Gate. And it's like, oh, well done. I see what you did there. <laughs> and we were watching. I was, I was like thinking that Kurt Russell that year, what well, I think it was just after it was released, should have been in Deep Rising, and basically it should have been an unofficial Big Trouble in Little China sequel yeah. where he was playing old Jack Burton, and they could have gotten someone else to be, be this totally inexpressive replicant soldier, and it, it's, it's, it's not for him. Well, no, yeah. no, because like, it, it's for someone who is able to shut themselves off. Fassbender would have been able to do it well, for example. Yeah. How often yeah. you get to say this? Kurt's charisma is a bit of a problem in that. <laughs> but to be fair, there is a good comparison you can you can draw between this and Scott's Alien. When mm. you look at the visual design, you could really see something like Wayland Utani, the Nostromo, existing in this Blade Runner world because of the way that technology is handled and looks in yeah. this film. Yes, I, it's kind of dated because we're using CRTs and, and stuff like that. But if you look past it, a lot of the visual design, especially of Deckard's apartment, you can see the you know the Nostromo in there and, mm. and things like that, and you could quite conceivably see that Welling Yutani is a corporation alongside Terrell Corporation mm. and along, along those lines. Yeah. Which I'm, you know, we, we were, you know, it was the 80s, so we weren't having these weird tie-ins. But it's honestly, surprised they didn't put some sort of big nod in there. We talked about this during our Star Wars commentaries, Neil. But uh, the the term, I don't know if I mentioned it on the podcast then, but it's it's retrofuturism. It's what they thought the future would be like in the past, specifically uh, around about the sort of late seventies, uh, maybe even late sixties. Um, it's something in common I share with Zan from the Game Burst podcast. We very much love these type of films, these eighties, yeah. especially the eighties, because I think the eighties were very nihilistic in them, and we very much like our dystopian future films, you know. And Blade Runner is is pretty much the king of the crop on that. Uh, its visual design is fantastic, and a very clever idea that doesn't date it too much is the adverts that they pick. Hmm. A lot of them are sort of made for the film but they throw just enough real ones in there you will see the drink coke one for example yeah. there's a pan am in there which obviously pan am flopped <laughs> that uh, didn't date well and there's yeah. an atari in so there did as atari, well. yeah. nice yeah <laughs> rca was bought by sony music entertainment bell phones were merged with at&t Tsingtao beer is still going as is cuisinart they must have hypertests on that thing. And what do we got on this thing? A Cuisinart? Another film this obviously made me think of when, when watching uh, this film in the cinema in 97, The Fifth Element, which we're going to be talking about in a few weeks' time. I, I adore The Fifth Element more than Blade Runner. But both, I, I was thinking, you know, this is obviously massively inspired by Blade Runner. Both Blade Runner and The Fifth Element were inspired by heavy metal. The, mm. uh, the, 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 yeah. the, and the and French comic art uh, as, and their versions of a uh, cityscape and Neil, you're a big fan of this stuff. 2000 AD, when was that yep. first released? That's the 70s. Yeah, so it feels it's like... It's very much Mega City 1 in, in Blade Runner. Yeah, it feels like there's no way that the um, Scott brothers, because uh, Ridley had um, uh, Tony Scott, and that both of them had another brother who died as well. It's hard to imagine the Scott brothers not being influenced by the same sources. 
You can actually see certain points of reference, certain lighting and framing schemes that exist between Ridley and Tony. There's a scene at the beginning when Leon shoots the uh, guy who's taking the uh, um, the test. Oh, that looks like pure Tony Scott. That looks like Tony watched that scene and went, now that is filmmaking, and then did that for the rest of his career. Like uh, it's, it's, it's got that kind of hemmed-in mundanity, and then there's that big explosion of the, 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 the gun going off, and like uh, Tony tended to do that a lot. And things like The Hunger and uh, Last Boy Scout. Mm. Yes. Yeah, and Beverly Hills Cop 2. <laughs> Actually, I was also thinking there's another film that tried to copy this visual aesthetic, but did it? In its own way, but Screams 80s, and that would be the aforementioned Highlander film that I do not speak of. Oh, yes, Highlander 2. That will be out at uh, some point as well. We, we, we recorded a Highlander 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 show uh, a while back and uh, have yet to release them. Here's the thing. We could talk for the whole show about films that have been directly influenced by uh, the look uh, of uh, Blade Runner. That was what impressed me when I saw this when I was a kid. You know, I obviously watched it on videotape on a little uh, CRT screen, and and that was what felt vivid and and, uh, uh, engaging. Uh, I was very turned off by the fact that nobody was fun in the film. I was watching Han Solo slash Indiana Jones, and he didn't make me smile at any point. And I was disappointed. And I think there was a point when I started to disengage with the film. I'll talk about that during the problems section. And then kind of really liked the ending, but I was uh, left nonplussed as to what it was about. This was around about the time I was watching things like Aliens and Robocop and Predator. And uh, again, this explains why it wasn't a huge hit, because people had the mentality of a 12-year-old boy when they were watching films like this in the cinema. I would d- they wanted more than what this gave them, and yet they also got less from those films than this film could have given them. What I'd also say is we'd seen a shift in sci-fi by this point. We'd seen a shift moreover into the more fun swashbuckling style adventures. of adventures yeah. sci-fi, where this is hard sci-fi. This is this wouldn't be out of place in the 70s kind of sci-fi stories that tell. So I don't think audiences were ready to go from you know the sharp turn of Wrath of Khan to Blade Runner. Yeah, I think you you t- you said the ending pleased you. And I think that's really, I mean, and I'm, by ending, I mean on the rooftop. That's what you're meaning, right? The rooftop yeah, and the yeah. rain? Okay. Yeah. Um, to me, that's the only truly authentically hopeful moment or moments in the film. So the only way to watch certain scenes, especially the scenes with Deckard and Rachel, I think, is, is to watch them with a very cynical disposition because they are incredibly cynical and would be hard to watch otherwise. Mm. But you can't uh, switch cynicism on and off. Uh, and and mm. that, even if they put a little light on the screen to say, be cynical now, it would yeah. feel forced. <laughs> to be fair, you, there is. Every time Deckard is on, scene, on screen, <laughs> he is a he is jaded yeah. beyond belief. He is the cynical alternative to a laugh track. Mm. <laughs> a sneer track. Did you guys watch uh, Dangerous Days? Which is the documentary on yes. the Nike label. I have, yes. It's yes. incredibly, it's epic. Uh, and it's 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 like uh, the Lord of the Rings levels of of detail on 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 the actual putting together of this film. The the part that really engaged me, right, and when I got past all of the uh, somewhat objectionable Scott stuff, was when they got to the effects. Like after they'd basically filmed a lot of this, like most of the actual 
scenes when they started building miniatures to then put in in the background and, and, and sort of like build the city around what they'd got. Uh, they'd done sets, obviously, before, but then when they really started to pull it together and give you the effects, that stuff fascinated me. The whole, the, the opening scene when they pull slowly across the city and the flames are arcing here and there, they basically had to just keep pushing the camera over that in one pass and film one thing and then superimpose flames over it and then do it another pass and then do it another pass and then do it another pass, each time adding a new element to it until what they were basically, they'd layered on what would be so easy to go in digital. Obviously, it would take a long time to create them digitally, but you have the control digitally to add and remove, which they did not have. They were basically working with how can we jury rig this film so that it looks like what we need it to look like, as opposed to we have absolute full microscopic polygonal control over everything people it, see. It's literally the, the comparison I brought up. It's Coruscant and LA 2019. Mm. You know, there's this texture to LA. This 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 just as there's the only way I can think that it because it is layered, it literally feels layered, mm. whereas Coruscant doesn't to me. You know, visually, no. it's not. It doesn't have that layer to it. Mm. Whereas this, you, it, you you feel like you feel like a lot of these shots, you can you know reach out and wipe the grime off your screen. Yeah. It's it's that texture level that and I the sweat that. off people's faces. I mean, like you can. You can see in so many scenes, I mean, I don't know if that is an effects person. It's so seamless, I don't know how you could possibly tell. But, I mean, they are caked in sweat. Mm. <laughs> it's so steamy. I, I guess a lot of that is just the byproduct of all the smoke that they had to walk through. But, Jesus Christ. Smoke and the rain are that, constantly raining. Yeah. <laughs> He also made the decision to uh, pull in really close for a lot of his uh, uh, shots. In fact, that's one of the things that uh, the final cut tweaks is a lot more sort of like drawing you in much closer to scenes. When you see them wide and everyone's walking around in costume, you're like, that's a film set. When you're drawn in really close, you're like, well, this is real. The, the way Deckard is first introduced is an annoying shot. You've got people walking backwards and forwards, and you're like, no, we're slowly pulling in on a focus point here. I'm fairly certain there's something behind these people. Get out of the way. And then they part for just a moment, and Deckard's there reading his newspaper. That's an exceptional bit of introduction. What I really like about that scene is it's, it's all that, but it's also one of the most mundane scenes in the entire film mm. of him just ordering some food. Also with the, uh, the one of the cringiest lines in the entire movie, he say, you braid runner! <laughs> are, are you, you sure you want to go with that one? <laughs> but it's part of the, um, the, the, the mashup of uh, Chinese and American culture, which found its way into Firefly in the end. Mm. Yeah. Um, carry on, uh, Colin, you were going to say. Oh, it's, I, I just I like that they are eating something that we could conceivably eat I don't know, in, in the hands of a different director that wanted to do something different with this film, they would have been eating some kind of like weird giant alien frog thing or something. We just were like, what? But I mean, he's just having noodles. And so that connected me already. I think that was a great choice because it, it just connected me to that world. I was like, oh, I could be on that street. In a there's, few enough, years. there's enough connective tissue to allow you to reckon on this as being real. And that, right. that mundanity, to be honest, is part of what makes really good sci-fi stick 
and the the sense that everything around you looks faintly recognizable faintly familiar mm. um, and that it's distorted just a little bit those are the best dystopias if you notice they're the ones that you look around and you go shit we're not far off that or indeed, we're experiencing our own dystopia. <laughs> we're having it I right wonder if he was now. Going to get that I get my own dystopia <laughs> with iPads. Um, but I, I, another one that I thought of uh, that sort of like throws in a bit of mundanity here and there, just to, to bring it uh, back to the ground. In Star Trek, just after Kirk's had that fight, and he's got those two bits of tissue stuffed up his nose, and um, mm. Pike's talking to him. He ends the conversation fiddling with a, a silver starship, and you're like, why has he got that? And then he tilts it, and salt comes out of it, because it's the salt cellar. Um, even though it happens to be a Federation starship shape, and he's, yeah. you know, considering his destiny. And Sharon's right. It's another reason to call back to Scott's earlier work in Alien, why Alien works. We're not with a group of badass space marines. Mm. We're with truckers or dock workers. And, you know, the, like the biggest conflict in the film before the Alien turns up is about a bonus, yeah. about a bonus pay. And, the, and when we hit the, you know, Blade Runner, the mundanity is... is is oddly an important fact, like Sharon was saying, to make you connect with this world because you can recognise so much of that world in what we have now. You know, the only difference is if someone made it this one today, instead of being noodles, it might be tacos or something for that scene. <laughs> Literally. There'll be a noodle truck on every corner. Um, <laughs> sorry. It's terrible. And we're living it. So well, well, let's talk about the the sound and music because we can we can of course go back to the look at any point uh, in this as as things occur. But um, the 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 first thing you get from Blade Runner is that boof beat, um, and I recognise that beat because it's how Akira starts as well. Yep. And I can't remember if I saw this first or Akira first, but I saw them very close together. I saw, I'm like you, I saw them very close together as well. We said the vi- oh well, I said the visuals were iconic. I'd also say the the sound design and the score is iconic as well oh, yeah. because it's like you know, start watching the film today. I was going, I was getting this. Yeah, I won't mind listening to the soundtrack to this because uh, I have it. And I mm. thought sounds just like you know, I won't mind listening to Mass Effect. Oh yeah, mm. that's right. They pretty much borrowed quite a lot for Mass Effect yeah. One for this. So when when you say that Mass Effect score sounds like Blade Runner, everyone knows exactly what you're saying. It's yes. Uh, the the um the, the, uh, we watched a, a YouTube video on the, the presence of reverb in the uh, soundscape. Uh, reverb was a relatively new thing, and they'd uh, only just um, uh, invented a machine which would allow a certain amount of reverb on on uh, notes. It was this massive thing that you'd have to attach and. Um, Artificially created reverb was a relatively new thing. Yeah, you could you you could use various instruments. Yeah, you can get reverb from a didgeridoo. Yeah, but, or a, a yeah. kettle drum or something. Yeah, but uh, but something where you can actually physically manipulate the notes, and Vangelis created the sound of the city, and it's it goes way beyond score. This you know the sound effects are all t- tied in with this, and it affects the mood, and it's. 
uh, you know, if you actually listen to the Esper edition of the soundtrack, it's it, it's just what's going on in the background behind, and there's voices and and mutterings and sound effects all mixed in with it, and it's it's inseparable from what's going on. You could you could play Blade Runner with John Williams' score, and it would sound like a great John Williams movie, but it wouldn't have the same mood at all. You could give it a John Carpenter score and it would be kind of a <laughs> It'd be like close. a very basic version of what Vangelis does. I do like Carpenter's scores but he's not Vangelis. But oh, you're no, right. No it's, Vangelis. it's heartbeats and breathing and rain spatter and all mm. of the things that contribute to um, one of the things that I, I was going to say about the, the look of the film is how claustrophobic it feels and the sound is a huge part of that. It envelops everybody. It encloses everybody. It creates this sense of uh, an insect-like mass that humanity has become. The idea that you can't get away from the crowd. Hmm. But if you go through the uh, soundtrack, um, each track is distinct. They have similarities, but it's not like... Um, Hans Zimmer's score for uh, Man of Steel, where it's doom 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 all the time, or Hans Zimmer's score for The Dark Knight Return uh, rises. Rises, rises, where every uh, where there are five instances of he does play the. Um, throughout, but like that's at the beginning and it's at the end, and there's a very specific moment when Batty's giving his speech where it goes from dun, 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 to a warmer, dun, 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 dun. like maybe things won't be quite so terrible going forwards. It's you know, it's a tiny, tiny glimmer of hope, obviously exemplified in an almost ham fisted but so direct to your heart that you can't really criticize it the dove flying away scene i mean it's 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 basic in terms of um uh expression of what's going on but at at the same time it's very very powerful and it's the only instance of daylight as this bird flies off into the dawn sky and it's less about we might be all right in the end we might be all right as a species and more about you know, maybe we won't be all right at all. But finding the beauty in that fragility. Like Vision said, something isn't beautiful because it lasts. Acknowledging both the darkness and light in ourselves and that the darkness will ultimately destroy us. But the light may have made it worth living. It's actually probably one of the greatest film scores out there. Oh, I yeah. put this up there with the Rings trilogy for score. Uh, Jaws as well, yes. Um, Jaws, Rings, Star Wars. I'm going to say that the uh, the the second Dark Knight film, uh, which is easier on the dun, 
One of my absolute favourites is a wonderfully arranged, truly effective, compelling, driving soundscape again. And again, what I mean when I say that is because well, a lot of time when we talk about soundtracks or scores, should I say more, more importantly scores than soundtracks, oh, yeah. is the fact there'll only be possibly one or two songs that will stick in the mind. For example, yeah. Phantom Menace has obviously the main Star Wars theme, but everybody knows that. The only other one that anyone ever remembers from that is Dawn of the Fates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. The songs that are all songs, tracks, <laughs> it's awkward because I'm so used to talking to soundtracks more than they scores. They feel like scores, songs because they have <laughs> such distinction to them. Yeah, exactly, and that's it. And, and they're each in their own right a fantastic piece of work. Mm. I think the, the sound of it, of the, the soundtrack and the score, is it's crucial to the characters as well in the similar way that lord of the rings does has specific instruments that relate to specific cultures within middle earth yeah. you've got all that pipe music that represents the hobbits and the the elves have their own tone as well the fact that you have all of this synthetic artificially created sound directly keys into the replicants and when you get memories of green that's one of the only ones that doesn't feel synthetic that's when rachel is uh, lets her hair down and plays the piano and Deckard is just mute, you know, wandering around the apartment um, thinking. And it's got a wonderful organic kind of two humans together and they're both in isolation sense of pondering. And uh, it's completely different to love theme where it's like <laughs> the saxophone during that scene which is in the problem section for me (laughs) but you're right about that whole that that seeming a little bit more two humans together ultimately the part of what that gets across is the idea that whether you're a human or a replicant it actually doesn't matter unless other people start telling you that that's who you are because in principle they made replicants too like us they 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 gave them too much and that creates pain in them it's about self-identity yeah we gave them too much and then we started taking away as soon as we had done we will tackle that in themes which is coming right up but we can talk about performances before that Highlights for you guys? Rutger Hauer. Yes. Rutger Hauer. Yeah. If, if Rutger Hauer was not in this film, uh, if uh, his character had been played by... Who was a prolific actor in the 80s? C. Thomas Howell. <laughs> I think he was in The Hitcher as well. Somebody slightly older, maybe. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And then Dustin Hoffman for a decade, yeah. Yeah, they they were thinking this, but like um, I think Ridley Scott basically said, well, you know, this man is not a a swarthy, aggressive type of man. He's he, you know, Deckard is not the sort of intellectual, thin fellow. And I I have some real problems with Ridley Scott. If you you know, watching throughout uh, Dangerous Days. Uh, his directorial style, his being very dismissive with people, his perfectionism. Uh, the set designers and the set dressers worked and slaved away for a day and a half to get it to his specifications. He turned up on set and went, well, you never get exactly what you want. They'd have been quite at liberty to say, fuck off! Turn those pillars upside down. I want them upside down. And he was right, they do really look good. 
upside down, you lose all that visual information if they're disappearing off the top of the camera shot. Those amazing bases, which were previously top bits. So the guy's got vision. It's tact and consideration he lacks. What Alex is trying to say is, Ridley Scott is a bit of an arse. He, he is a bit of an arse. He, ama- he is capable of amazing things, but it seems that, like James Cameron, to do so, he has to be mean to everybody. It's really worth checking out if you're if you're into poking fun at Ridley Scott's immassive ego. Uh, checking out the the review section that Red Letter Media just did on Blade Runner. Oh, um, nice. Jay Jay just reads a quote, like a a straight quote from Ridley Scott, and it's horrifying. But uh, this is a recent interview with uh, Ridley Scott about the idea of Decker being a replicant. Okay. Oh, it was always my thesis theory. I remember someone had said, well, isn't it corny? I said, listen, I'll be the best fucking judge of that. I'm the director, okay? So, and that, you know, you know, by then I'm 44, so I'm no fucking chicken. I'm the very experienced director from commercials and the duelists and alien. So I'm able to, you know, answer that with confidence at the time and say, you know, back off. It's what it's going to be. I think Harrison was going, uh, I don't know about that. I said, but you have to be, because Gaff, who leaves a trail of origami everywhere, will leave you a little piece of origami at the end of the movie to say, I've been here, I left her alive, and I can't resist letting you know what's in your most private thoughts when you get drunk as a fucking unicorn. Right? So, I love Beavis and Butthead. So what should follow that is, duh. So now it will be revealed in the sequel, one way or the other. What? <laughs> Are you serious? Oh my god. This is the director of that, Alien Covenant, that kind of, by the way. That took a left. I think the whole thing is he just wanted to really let people know that he's a big fan of Beavis and Butthead. Holy shit. But, wow. But th- this is the, the ramblings of, of a confused elderly filmmaker he, uh, that doesn't understand his own movies. Let's talk about really A la George Lucas. Were this film not to be blessed with Rutger Hauer, who was able to craft something extraordinary and make him both childlike and ancient at the same time, and dangerous and frightening and pitiable, this film would have fallen apart because it needed him for that crucial pulling together at the end. And it needed him to to sell that. And if you remove that component, it's a, he's a supporting beam. The whole house falls down. Mm. Without him, the... Deckard wouldn't work. Sorry, go yeah. ahead, Chad. Well, actually, no, that, that's almost exactly what I was about to say. That he and Ford play opposing sides of a coin in this. That it's the fact that they are um, dif- so different from each other in such very specific ways that makes it work. You know, you've got... Uh, Rutger Hauer, extremely pale, white hair, very pale eyes. Um, he's he's almost skinny when he um, gets to the point where he's he's lost the shirt, and and he looks once he's soaked, he looks as though he's starting to become translucent almost, mm. as though he's fading away. And then you've got Harrison Ford, who at this point has this sort of action hero. Um, reputation and demeanour mm. and very dark hair, very grizzled face um, and they just they, they kind of, they trade off each other's 
tone mm. almost to get yeah. that juxtaposition and that's what makes it work so well they're both afraid during that scene um but uh Deckard is absolutely paralyzed by his fear in the end there's a point where um he's climbing up that uh, uh chimney stack to to get to the roof and he's like holding his daytrick pistol in one hand the other hand is broken and he drops it of course you dropped it there's a holster you have a holster put it in the holster but he's so paralyzed with fear he can't even think practically as to you know i'll just i'll put it in here and then if he turns up i'll pull it out then i'll deal with that when i have to he's just clinging to it at that point and he clings so hard he lets go and it's not just fear at that point either it's pain it's cold it's it he's soaked he's lost his direction he doesn't yeah. even know why he's here absolutely and we'll come to that also, when it comes to the problems i also think that um I mean, there are some scenes that I feel like you just can't really forgive when it comes to how Harrison Ford and Ridley Scott decided to play against the very inexperienced uh, Sean Young Sean as Young. Rachel. Yeah. But that, that would be really, for me at least, a lot harder to take on a creative level if, if Rudger Hauer wasn't so sweet as his character with all of his family replicants. There's something yes. there, you know? Yeah, and that actually uh, works to uh, to show the the, the flip side with uh, Deckard is that he takes uh, uh, during that scene and he demands and uh, all um, Batty seems to want is to keep his friends alive. Mm. Well, compare that to the almost chasteness of the way he kisses Pris once when she's mm. alive and once when she's dead. Yeah. Um, but uh, Sean Young, this is the performance of her lifetime. She will, um, she, she, we've talked about this on various other movies before. We'll talk about it again when we come to Indiana Jones, I would imagine. She tried out for everything in the 70s and 80s. She tried out for Princess Leia. She tried out for Indiana Jones. She tried out for Lois Lane. She tried out for, I was going to say, she tried out for Indiana Jones. At this point, Marian it would have been Marion Ravenwood, of course. So. <laughs> I was going to say, she I, I think play. I can probably she turned guess up in a hat. that she was not what they had in mind for Indiana Jones. And she turned up in Tim Burton's office dressed as Catwoman. Now, I want to imagine Sean Young, like, stalking forwards and then sitting on his desk and Tim Burton, this weird little goatee man going, like, uh, get this woman out of my office, please. And her being really intimidating and him not being able to handle that. Uh, and she didn't get any of those roles. And she did get this one. And it feels like... And she was young and inexperienced and this was her big break. And she never really hit beyond this this was her you know back in the 80s i was in a very famous blade runner film uh, it's it's delicate and restrained and far better than you could expect from someone of uh such slight years when she cries when decades like his memories it's uh, tyrell's nieces he's ripping her life apart at that stage and then backpedals pathetically and goes oh it's a joke it's a joke and she's broken and you can see it all over her face and just that, that you know she's got such an intense performance and at the same time she doesn't overdo it and she's one of the unsung heroes of this film because mm. without that again if you've just got Roy Batty uh, you know and, and you uh, Deckard you don't have that basically Rachel's the most human person in this film There's an well and there. people and people always call her, well, not always, but I've seen people call her performance robotic. Like, well, you know, <laughs> you know, and 
I'm like, are you stupid? Like, what, what's going on? People underestimate her ability to play a character who possibly was designed to be a little subservient. I mean, one of her, like, she was made by this man who then made her his secretary. And I'm not suggesting that secretaries are subservient, but there is a, I mean, his house is a fucking pyramid. So I'm sure he wanted her to, like, basically be his slave. Mm. And I think she plays that demure side well whilst still not being a wallflower. She very specifically, I'll, I'll try and go into this, this a little bit later when we talk about the themes, because I, I started getting a very strong flavor of Greek mythology about this, largely because of the temple. Um, but the fact that she's introduced with an owl, she immediately made me think of Athena. Um, yes. The uh, the idea that that basically if if Tyrell is Zeus, she has sprung fully formed from his forehead, mm. mm-hmm. um, and and Athena is very much her representations are of strength and wisdom and character, but she is very much classically female, classically feminine. Um, and adhering to those uh, somewhat stereotypical ideals, which ultimately Rachel very much does. And like you say, she's created to be that way. She hasn't had the opportunity to form herself. Mm. Um, I want to come back to this whole thing, because you've got a whole Greek mythology um, sidebar, and I want to deal with that in themes. But uh, yeah, to be be continued on that, we're just going to do a couple more uh, performances uh, William Sanderson as J.F. Sebastian. He's one of the best things in Deadwood uh, as uh, E.B. Farnham. And there's kind of a, a trifecta of humanity uh, as it stands. Like If you think of the, the whole... The new world life awaits you in the off-world colonies. People are leaving Earth in droves. They're leaving it behind. J.F. Sebastian lives in this uh, giant hotel. He lives in the Bradbury Hotel, uh, named after Ray Bradbury. And... Uh, it's it's empty. People are leaving, and they like all that is left behind are these, uh, you know, uh, the, the 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 waste of the streets, running around looking for scraps, and this, like I say, this trifecta of men. You've got, and this is me just like writing an essay off the top of my head. The police chief, played by M. Emmett Walsh, uh, uh, um, is like, oh, it sure was a shame about them replicants, uh, but the. He carries with him this, you know, if, if you're not a cop, you're nothing. You're, no, you're little people. Like, you, you're an underclass. Like, the cops effectively form this overclass lording over everyone else on the streets. So he's the arbiter of that. And he's just this pathetic old man in a, uh, a police station, like, subcontracting out this dangerous task to their attack dog, who's just this private eye. He's not even a cop. Uh, and, you know, um, Edward James Olmos as Gaff. I was thinking, well, why doesn't Gaff go after the uh, um, uh, the replicants? Well, you've got to be a blade runner. When Zora starts running, Gaff is is wounded. So it's it's like the cops can't even do the this key job anymore because they've um, uh, become accustomed to shutting themselves away and subcontracting. Mm-hmm. So you've got that, um, and you've got uh, Willie, um, J.F. Sebastian, who's this like little tinker. Um, type guy who just wants to create. That's his art. That's his way of passing himself forwards. He's got this terrible disease which is just draining his life away and he makes toys and he makes you know, robots. and He makes toys very specifically in a world which appears to have no children. Yeah, 
But it's a, he has no future in a world where it seems like rapidly the future's going to come crashing down on them. And then you've got um, Tyrell as the, the super successful version of him, this old man who lives in his pyramid and can create at will and, and do whatever takes his fancy. So, and then there, like, ultimately, when it comes down to it in terms of, like, social hierarchy, you got Tyrell at the top, then Sebastian's like his little lapdog, and then you got the police, and then underneath that, everyone else at the bottom of the pyramid getting crushed. And at the, below them are the replicants. Yeah. And there was a point in uh, Tiger's Eye, where I, I, I always talk about my books, but... Fuck it, I'm, I, I use sure my show for these films. Um, there's a point in Tiger's Eye where the, the King of the Lions says, um, we can't abolish slavery in London. The lowest of classes currently at this point can at least count themselves better than slaves. If they then have to do the slaves' work, they then feel shit about themselves. And I think you might then understand why the South hates the North so much. That also ties in with what... Um, Captain Bolter says in The Princess Thieves of thanking the Akka as their adopted underclass because that allows them to place humans in the middle below Duarte but above Akka so that they have someone to hate, someone to resent, someone to be fearful of and someone to thank God that they're not. And speaking of fear, I think that the casting of uh, J.F. Sebastian was phenomenal because he can be I mean, he's been in roles where he can be subtly creepy. I, the only thing I, or the only really other thing I can think of him in was he voiced a character in Batman the Animated Series that I really liked. Did you, was do you the, remember the, the guy episode? Who killed Batman accidentally, and the Joker gets really angry with him. He might have been, but I just remember him as the one who creates Hardak, the one in the the robot episode where they're taking over yeah. Gotham City by, yeah, um, which probably is a callback to Blade Runner, um, as the nice. blimps are in that show. I think. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but I think he was really well cast because you just feel bad for him and he's so sweet. He's not, he's, he's not to be feared at all. And I think that the first dose of compassion in the film is actually when he takes Pris in. I mean, ultimately he doesn't understand her motives and he pays the price for it, but he's maybe the most selfless character in the film. And yet he's ultimately connected to the guy in the pyramid. He's, he does have a side of compassion to him. He almost he is almost on the same level as the androids, given his genetic uh, disorder that means he's dying. He doesn't have that long lifespan that others have, so he can sympathise and empathise with with Batty and Pris. Pris especially a lot more than than any of the other characters. Um, but fundamentally, like the rest of the world, he is quite broken. Because mm. bear in mind, you were saying he makes toys. Just remember, this isn't in this. We we the replicants aren't androids. They aren't robots. They're genetically engineered people. Yeah. Yeah, which, Chris bleeds. <laughs> yes, they all bleed. And they all bleed. It, 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 especially, that's one of the strange things about this film. It, uh, this time, sci-fi would still be about robots and androids. This is quite modern in its thinking where it's about genetics. Mm. Oh, know, I have a, a question for you. I, I just, maybe somebody, I don't want to get vulgar, but quick question about the toy in JF's apartment. Mm-hmm. I know that eyes are a big theme. I mean, other than the big establishing shot at the beginning, we have an eye and all the lights in the eye. But was the toy aroused by the way Pris looked? I mean, were we supposed to get the sense that this toy in his apartment was, like, ogling her? <laughs> toy? I think it is. 
I think it honestly is. It might be. My interpretation was that it was slightly scandalised by her behaviour. Oh. <laughs> There's a really nice little deleted moment where uh, there are rats crawling all over Pris, and she's just sort of looking at them and like holding up her hand, and they're sort of walking on them. So she's observing these little lives. Um, I, I really wish they'd left that in because it would allow you to empathise more with Pris because she goes from this pitiful character to being quite sunny to being a little bit frightening to being terrifying and the the way she dies is is hideous then in death she transitions again to something more angelic and beatific and uh, that allows uh, Roy to mourn her uh, and and we yeah. get to, to to feel his pain there uh, it says here the um that Ridley liked the idea of exploring pain in the wake of his brother's skin cancer death when he was ill I used to go and visit him in London and that was really traumatic for me so basically he got up close and personal to, to see a man who was dying and was very aware of the fact that he was dying and all of the thoughts that would go through his head and, and, and not just a man but his brother and that's a that's that's nightmarish to imagine going through so it would appear that a lot of that, much as the problems that I have with, with Ridley, that a lot of that was a very honest um, sense of conveying something personal, of the um, the sense of living in fear. And Philip K. Dick lost a sibling as well. I, I believe he lost his twin sister. So that kind of connects them in a weird, weird way. Yeah. It's not watching... Roy and Pris together because I was watching it and his sort of fall after Pris's death and going crazy and I was like this feels familiar to me and I was bugging me for the longest time and then I realised it's very almost Joker Harley Quinn-esque hmm. oh yeah not not an exact but I must see Roy just snap almost for that first section before we get to the rooftop it says here it also draws on biblical images such as Noah's flood um, didn't really see that but literary sources such as Frankenstein absolutely hell yes so if you take uh, Pris to be the bride of Frankenstein and then what he has to do when he's the last one left and it, you know he destroys his creator but then his reckoning with humanity uh, surfaces uh, with his conflict with Deckard but and this is why I've been saying it's a really bad idea for uh, Universal's Dark Universe films to Ugh. be set now. Because they have to create a world where there's no such movie as Frankenstein, where there's no such book as Frankenstein, and where there's no such film as Blade Runner. Because Frankenstein is the book from which all sci-fi stems! Mm. It was the first sci-fi! Now yes. that would be... An interesting world to create. Write me a world in which there is no sci-fi. <laughs> okay? We're all still living on farms and moving around from place to place by cart. Now, I'm not yeah. saying there would be no sci-fi. I'm certainly not saying that all sci-fi is directly linked to Frankenstein. But what I am saying is it was the Rosetta Stone. Mm. It, well, at least uh, it, it was the... It is often credited as being the first modern sci-fi. Yeah. Um, and so you would have to create a world where that wasn't in existence and that Dracula didn't exist as a book and that the, um, you know, you'd have to then craft a world where our conception of monsters is different. And they sure as shit didn't do that in The Mummy. Haven't seen nope. it, don't want to see it. <laughs> You're not worry. missing anything. <laughs> didn't think I was. I've just worked out why. Mary why? Shelley killed God. 
Yes, a modern day Prometheus. That's what she called it. And yeah. it was, yeah. Which leads us very neatly to your Greek mythology. Yes. Okay, so go yes, for it, Sharon. Okay, so yeah, so this was kind of the the light kind of sparked off when they they walk into the uh, the the Terrell Corporation and it looks like a Greek temple, mm. um, and then like I said, the the images of Rachel just seemed very Athena like to me, and that fit with Terrell being Zeus. It's also yeah, it's Mount Olympus. That's what this massive. Yeah, it's, it's this sort of we're up here on the top of of uh, the world, looking mm. down on all these little people that are crawling around. And bearing in mind that the the people who are left, as you said, are the people who are not good enough to go to the mm. colonies. These are the substandard, really underneath the replicants. If they are the genetic crafting and um, improving on humans, then the people in this world are like the complete antithesis of There's that. very few middle class left. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's, it's the scum of the earth and Eldon Terrell. Jesus. And they're, <laughs> and all of the, they're, they're rulers and their they're overlords are all these old ass men. Like I said, they're all these yeah. old men dying. All the old ass men who are genetically inadequate to go out to the colonies, interestingly mm. enough. And Jared later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Indeed. Sorry. We are not going to talk about this sequel. And that's no. again why I I really don't want to talk about Blade, uh, Blade Runner, Deckard directly being a uh, replicant or not, because whatever we say will be confounded by mm. 2049. Yes, indeed. I mean, um, and you already said he's the fucking director, so whatever yeah, we say doesn't yeah. matter. That's a good point. Yeah, mm, um, we can, however, we may infer. as well stop now. Yeah, um, <laughs> I did. Except take, we're not going. To when did I take there. that shitty attitude? I was like, right, fine. I'm not going to infer anything. I was watership down. I was that like, was right, it. fine. Yes. No allegory. Fine, it's then just Cheers. about rabbits. Just okay. about rabbits. That's fine. Um, <laughs> oh, by the way, that uh, giant pyramid, uh, folks. It was five feet tall and uh, hollow on the inside and it had an incredibly intense white light in it mm. and uh, the lights uh, around the outside were basically formed by just punching little windows in it. See, Do you know where I- you can see it? Because I saw online that you can go see this somewhere. I think it's at a museum in this place with the stuff. <laughs> I think it's in. I actually think it's in New York because I saw a, uh, a video oh, okay. where the guy was standing next to it. I do think it went on fire at one point. <laughs> it oh. did go on fire at one point. Yeah. I'm, I'm guessing they put it out quite. Because it had an incredibly intense white light <laughs> but on the this inside. This is this is something that uh, that I think people need to be careful of with the move towards CG. To create something... Honey, we have moved towards it. We're no, no, no. in it. What I'm, what <laughs> it's like I mean saying, is, you don't want to move towards that swimming pool no, no, you're no. currently swimming in. What, what <laughs> I mean is moving towards CG and abandoning all concept of doing anything practically. The well, fact they haven't is, abandoned it totally. The Force you, Awakens did very well. Yes, I realise that. But there are a lot of people who sort of take the attitude that it's, you know, the CG stuff is magnificent we'll and We'll do fantastic, it in post. And practical effects are what you do when you're practicing. Who was wearing a t-shirt that said we'll do it in post? We were watching a making of the other day. I'll fix it in post. Yeah. Um, I can't remember. Was it... Oh, no. It Was it Shyamalan? And yes, it was. For, it, was. it was the, during the last Airbender. It he was, was wearing a T-shirt while that said, said we'll fix it in post. post. Slap that man. Anyway. So even though you guys are moving your arms around like dibs at this point, we'll add bending in later. Mm. But no, what I mean is that the, the, the image that you get by taking this cardboard pyramid, poking holes in it with a pencil and then shining a torch up through it's it. It's a bit more crafting than that. Yes, I know. But the point being that to, to draw that in <laughs> CG form, somebody has to sit down and come up with all of those ideas. They they have to spring from something. 
dicking around with clay and cardboard and plastic and torches and, and stuff. Dicking around with clay was my favourite TV show when I was six. <laughs> I think you'll find it was called Why Don't You? Yeah, um, Johnny Ball directed it, <laughs> presented it. Um, but, but what I mean is when, you act, when you're actually interacting with physical things, it will give you more ideas hmm. rather than just sitting there in front of the keyboard. And I'm not saying there's no art in that understand that I'm not saying it's a bad thing but I think the practical side of things is still really really important people still need to do that oh one thing that we um, we, we were finding the distinction in uh, is is so much of this practical stuff ended up slightly out of focus because you're focusing on Deckard and the practical stuff's in the background mm. with a lot of CG backgrounds they're not blurred, they're not out of focus, they're pin sharp and you can see everything behind everyone, which means y there's no depth of field. No, and plus the fact people are sitting there going, I worked really hard on that background, damn it, people are going to see it clearly. You will not blur that orc <laughs> fortress. Again, I, I'm not knocking the, art, the CG artists that do produce some fantastic stuff, but I've always found that when it's a blend of the two is when it works mm, best, when it's absolutely. a blend of both practical because, uh, and CGAs, it, it, it shines through so much better. Also, who that affects this? people who do practical work as well. The guy who designed all the adverts and all of the graphic design was said, like, I would say about one third of everything I, put, I actually put into this film, no one ever saw. Mm. And they likened it to uh, an, an, a Chinese filmmaker uh, who was uh, shooting scenes in, 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 a, in a beautifully intricate set in a doctor's surgery. And there were medicines inside the drawers which nobody could see. But they were there to make it feel real. Ooh, what's like the engravings they put inside the armor in, um, in Lord of the Rings? Yeah. That was there effectively for the actor's benefit because yeah. they could look at it and think, "Yeah, this feels real." We've had this and conversation so many times on this really very have. show. Isn't I'm sure there is a filmmaker. There may even be more than one um, who said basically, if you can do it practically, or do it practically if you can, do it CG if you can't. Yeah, uh -huh. if you must, or something along those lines. Yeah, Basically, you, you use it to fill in the things that you can't do. I think it was me who said that. <laughs> I think lots of people have okay, said something Okay, so continue with anyway, your allegory. the Greek mythology allegory. So, yeah, so I started thinking, well, can, can we expand this beyond the Terrell Corporation? Does it work with some of the other characters? And they started kind of popping into my head, and, and they really do. Um, J.F. Sebastian is Hephaestus, the lame smith. Mm -hmm. um, who who creates things, and I believe he does in fact make little. Um, uh, he created Athena's owl in Clash of the Titans, didn't yes, he? He did. Um, owl too detailed. He makes. Um, I can't Ooh. think what. There's a specific word is word for making little men creatures. Homunculi. Homunculi, yeah. Yeah. Um, he also crafted Zeus's lightning bolts. He is married to Aphrodite, mm -hmm. who is Pris. Yeah. Okay. That's Venus, folks. Um, and she appears in rain, Af and Aphrodite emerges from the sea. Mm -hmm. um, she is. Didn't see the big clamshell. She uses no. There is no clamshell. What well, she kind of she doesn't she come out of a? Oh no, she she bumps into a. a she does pull a hard-boiled egg out of a, uh, a big boiling <laughs> a, a, a glass pat. Like, he's got, like, surgical instruments in his house. But she's, it's she only glass is, so we can see that it's boiling water with eggs in it. She is specifically introduced as being a, how is it they describe her, a basic pleasure model? Yeah, mm -hmm. in a very um, offhandy, like, hand-wavy kind of way. Um, but, this one's not dangerous. But if you look at the lifestyles... She'll pull your nostrils right off. Um, <laughs> if you look at the lifestyles that they've gone into, she hasn't gone into 
the sexy dancing thing, that's what Zora's done, and yeah. that wasn't her intended purpose. Yeah. But I'll come to that in a bit because I'm going to talk <laughs> about how the, the replicants Go for are it. choosing their actions. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so Paris is Aphrodite. She, she does things by deception. Ultimately, sympathetic though we, may, though we may be towards her, she is using deception to get what she wants out of Sebastian, which is something that Aphrodite does in myth. Um, so then, um, oh, and then it also occurred to me that the, um, the, the gate guard that they, that, um, Leon and Roy have to get through, um, deals in eyes. That's, uh, is it Argo? Um, Aphrodite's watchman who has a thousand eyes and gets turned into a peacock when he dies. That's exactly what I was going to say. Um... (laughs) And so you've then got uh, Zora uh, is Artemis. She's the huntress. She's physically strong. She is. Um, she fights off the men who try to approach her and pursue her. And she's, uh, you know, most of what we see her doing is fleeing mm-hmm. and hiding from men. And that's that's kind of Artemis's thing. Um, Deckard going down into um, the clubs. To uh, to find her, uh, that made me think of Orpheus and Orpheus Eurydice, Eurydice, especially since, yeah. since he's pursuing a snake, mm. um, and and Eurydice, Eurydice Eurydice is bitten by a snake, and that's why he has to go down there in the first place, um, and that would make that whole substrata of L.A. Hades, mm. which does kind of make sense. Um, so I started thinking about well, who's Roy in all of this then and um, he has been referred to as a, a Prometheus type character before mm-hmm. and that does work because if, if they're looking at the replicants as being more human than human that effectively makes them gods Yeah. and Prometheus is a titan, he's not quite a god but he's, he kind of straddles that gap between god and man but he throws his lot in with man and he ends up getting punished for it and the dove that flies away at the end could be Prometheus's eagle, the one that punishes him by tearing out his liver every day. There's a pursuit of the real going on throughout this as well. In the in Do Androids Dream of Electronic Sheep, um, which is an awful name for a book, by the way, Blade Runner is so much more compelling. Uh, but, I mean, for a start, like, for, we don't dream of sheep. We count them so that we can dream. So, like, you, you've fallen at the first hurdle there, Mr... Okay, Dick. Uh, Deckard's doing this whole thing. Uh, he, he's blade running despite it being dangerous because he wants to buy an animal, like a real one. They they mention it in a full way. You know, do you like our owl? Like we designed it. Um, did they design it? Yeah. 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 The owl is yeah. fake. And then, but, but he says to Zora. Zora, is yes, that, that real is real thing. She's like, I think I can afford a real one. It just seems like we've killed all the animals. Uh, which again that compounds this whole that there is an utter absence of green in this world. Um, oh, that's why it feels like Children of Men. Yeah, and that you know when if you kill animals and plants which represent life, you are just closing down. You're you're hitting the timer to, to the the time when there will be nothing left. Mm. So it would appear that Deckard, and it's not just Deckard, everyone in this whole world, including the replicants, is searching for what is real 
they've been the the replicants themselves have been told this is all fake your feelings they're fake they're not real they're um they're implanted memories as soon as they find out that they're implanted memories and you don't have a future and so they reach out and touch the world and this happens specifically with both pris and batty they want to find out whether what they're experiencing is real or not or whether it's just you know whether they can rationalize in their brain well it's real enough to me mm. but they don't live long enough to say to, to be able to reach those conclusions and that is something that very specifically fits in with their lifespan this is another thing that occurred to me when they started talking about they, they live for about three or four years and then they shut down um the that that ties in with the point in a child's life where they're starting to really interact with the rest of the world Not to three, they're forming their ideas about who they are. Three, four onwards, three, three to six is the bracket where they start to work out how that identity fits in with the larger world. And what they've effectively done by giving them this four-year cut-off point is they're preventing them from developing a relationship with the world beyond themselves, which means that in that space of time, all they have is their own identity and if you look at the way the replicants behave um when they they get to earth and they're effectively free of sorts um their that identity is what they are desperately trying to explore um the the police chief sort of describes them as being these ruthless killers and they slaughtered 23 people to get down here and but but they're not here to kill that's not their purpose most of what you actually see them doing is is to achieve an end if they could get that end peacefully i'm pretty sure they'd be quite happy with that roy is is frustrated because he can't expand his lifespan um and and he he expresses that frustration in a very childlike anger and and frustration and lashing out at the people who he sees as as keeping him confined in this four-year cage um but a lot of what they they do is actually it their their acts of creation they they I mean, you could put Zora's dancing, um, Pris and the makeup and the, the way she mm. um, chooses. Like, she gets to choose her clothes now. She gets to dress herself. Mm. Um, and she plays with that. She gets quite artistic with it. Um, and um, Leon doesn't really appear to have much in the way of, of creative outpouring. And he is the most violent, the most um, sort of crudely, physically aggressive. He's the one who's done taking orders. He's done being uh, constrained and he will uh, react he, violently and animalistically. Is he the youngest as well? Uh, he has the lowest intelligence class. I think that's a fact. Yeah, he's, he was designed to be a worker, which, yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, this has kind of metropolis themes to it. Mm. And there's there's that dichotomy going on between them as a group as well. You've got Roy is the intelligent one, mm. and they, they talk specifically about his brain having been designed by Tyrell himself. Mm. Um, and uh, Leon is the physical one. Mm. And then you've got the... the um, uh, the dichotomy of the virgin and the whore with Pris and Zora. Uh, Zora being a stripper and Pris, mm. but she is literally called Pris. I know that she's designed as the pleasure model, but she's not. She's actually quite virginal in the way she mm. she behaves. She's very childlike. She's all dressed in white. Roy's uh, art, um, his 
it, you know, he's framed it as his pursuit. He's trying to get life, but it 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 results in philosophy in so far as he's he thinks he thinks more than it would appear any human on this planet, and that's kind of the 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 tiny amount of legacy he leaves behind. He sort of passes it along to Deckard and says, "Think about this. Bye." And that's why he can't kill Deckard. This this idea of um, of the things he's seen and those things being lost, art and creation is how humans really reach immortality. We have children so that we can pass on our ideals to them. We create art so that the things we've seen with our eyes, we can communicate to other people. All those those memories, the things Roy talks about having seen, he can't paint them. He can't write them down. He doesn't have the the. He hasn't learned how to do those things, and he doesn't have the time to learn how. So allowing Deckard to live, it the way that came across to me is is this is his act of creation. He passes on those images that he's seen, and then lets Deckard go. Mm. Also, someone needs to tell that to Peter Wayland because screw that old bastard. Um, I mentioned on Twitter that uh, uh, Lyra liked Blade Runner more than I did when I was um, well I, I saw it when I was older than her but when I was a kid uh, I think someone made a, a, a judgement on me myself as, as a kid and it was like no you know what actually the reason Lyra liked Blade Runner more than I did is because I sat down with her through the whole thing she got to see it in glorious HD with the sound up in this massive um, screen and she got me explaining the themes and characters and motivations to her along the way and preparing her for it so that she understood what was going on and at the end she felt really sorry for Roy and her heart ached for him the reason Lyra appreciated Blade Runner more than I did was because I didn't have me. You didn't, as have, a dad. To, you didn't have someone to explain the concepts. No, it's yeah. it's for a child on their own trying to grasp the the heavy weighty themes that this film delves into. Yeah. It is quite hard. But if you have someone there to explain and take it through, yeah, I w- I would imagine she absolutely loves it. And your heart does ache for Roy at the end because despite his actions, Roy at the end is almost kind of the good guy in yeah. my eyes. That's uh, another theme I'm going to talk about in a second. Colin was going to say something a while back. Were you going to? About, I just. About, but we, I cut across you. It was just a. It was, a it, it was a question for Sharon. I was wondering if she had found any. Um, going off of her mythology angle, if she had found anything um, research-wise connecting Blade Runner to Oedipus, because the last time I watched it, I kept looking at people's eyes, and then at the end, it it was this son figure gouging out the eyes of the father, which isn't technically exactly what happens in Oedipus then I went a step further and I was thinking about Rachel and the story that she tells about her mother she goes oh well this is you know this is the picture of my mother and then the next story we get from her is about a spider as consumed by its children and um, anyway I was just wondering if there was any anything that you had kind of latched onto in that regard um, I think, because I, I did do a little bit of a, a quick Google to see if anybody else had talked about sort of specific parallels in Greek mythology, and I seem to recall seeing Oedipus mentioned, but it was just, it was very briefly in a, a, a greater theme. Um, but, I mean, you're absolutely right, those images are definitely there, and the, the idea of the um, that, that sort of Oedipal conflict, the idea that um, a creator must 
kill no sorry a creation must mm-hmm. kill their creator that that's that's kind of part of the natural process of of becoming the the next generation um is is one of the things that's there in that story the idea that that we create replicants to be better than us that's the point and they are supposed to take over from us by limiting their lifespan to four years we are fucking up the process mm. and and putting a spanner in in how these things are supposed to work it's like um, that's an the, act of defense though that's we don't want these guys to rise up and destroy us but it's 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 fundamentally wrong and i think this is this is one of the things that that keeps getting explored when people talk about um artificial intelligence mm. because there is a worry that ultimately this is a, a philosophical conflict that we are going to have to deal with. Do yeah. we make things that can and will take over from us? Because that's that's kind of what you're meant to do. Mm. The young are supposed to take over. It's it's one of the, the things about the the world in um, in Children of Men and um, Never Let Me Go that feels, that's what feels so fundamentally grey and sad and wrong about those worlds, that they have um, artificially preserved old people and young people are either completely absent or they're being manipulated and controlled and, and used. Um, or chided for liking avocado toast too much (laughs) yeah that's a thing (laughs) stop just stop i read i read something today actually that that kind of implied that one of the reasons that boomers are so um obsessively controlling it's because they're all psychopaths is because you say that in a, in a subtle kind of way. Basically, they grew up the first generation where as children and teenagers, they really got paid attention to and catered to mm. and pandered to. And they were hippies and punks and, um, you know, felt like they had control of the world. And by God, they are not going to let that go. Mm. No. I say that in a light tone, but I have actually read a, a, an article that basically did compare them to psychopaths and it was a little bit scary. Mm. <laughs> you know, there are some psychopathic like about your parents that way, do you? <laughs> there are some there are some uh, psychopathic tendencies to the replicants, but I don't think that we can judge them for that. Mm. I think like mm. there there are some moments where uh, they they do ex- they do illustrate a lack of control of their faculties, and they do sometimes have problems, you know, with connecting to humans i think there are there are some things there but i think we've already touched on the fact that they just have not give, been given the chance so they're being punished by someone who quite honestly is just as if not more incapable of connecting to human beings mm. absolutely well they they are psychopathic in the sense that toddlers are psychopathic the right. difference is that toddlers are two feet tall and can't twist your head off Th- that is and there's a reason for that because if they could they would i think that is one of the key things about the replicants it's not something i've always seen them as they are childlike toddler like yet they have been given these it's like giving a toddler superpowers basically mentally they are they are children almost they've not been given the nurturing what well, we assume it's never really shown but you, you can assume and it's heavily implied that they're not really been nurtured or anything they are tools for a certain job so mentally they are they are toddlers yet uh, you take someone like roy who is a combat model and like you said he could twist your head off your shoulders or gouge your eyes out quite easily and crush your skull 
and it is a fit of frustration and rage that he does that because he's not got what he wanted he wanted to extend his life and for his life of his friends but he he finally finds his creator his creator cannot give him that the frustration and everything boils over even after he's killed him he still feels that anger and rage and unfortunately that's when he kills the other one and i know you're we're, we're not talking about the other versions yet but i i think this applies when uh when roy actually is confronting tyrell they his, i mean his performance is just so fucking incredible but rudger Hauer made a specific choice to say fa like a like a mold of fucker and father so in some versions it's fucker and then in other versions like for television to be safer or whatever it's father and i think that that um because he says uh tyrell to roy you know you're the prodigal son but all the things that you know sharon was talking about the in you know the ability to give love you know the the point of a parent he he doesn't get that he hasn't really parented at all Mm. yeah and i do wonder actually if the reason that rachel seems more human and is able to interact on a more human level is not specifically the memory implants that she's been given although i think it is telling that a lot of those implants are to do with interaction with other people um but it's because people treat her like a human because they don't know that she's a replicant Mm. Yeah. Uh, this leads me to um, actually, uh, it's what you said earlier, Neil, about um, Batty becoming kind of the good guy. It, this is the uh, film noirish trope. Uh, in insofar as uh, we are handed Deckard as our hero, and it's 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 kind of perfect that it's um, the guy who previously played Han Solo. If you are trying to tell this particular story. Unfortunately, this particular story is deeply dissatisfying to a lot of people because we are handed a guy who we've seen be kind of a dick and very selfish, but then end up doing the right thing. And Deckard is kind of a dick and very selfish. Full stop. Yes, he never does the right thing. He's uh, he's not compelled to do the right thing. He's basically just a bit of a worm and a scumbag through the whole film. And he weasels and cheats his way uh, uh, around uh, Zora and then shoots her in the back. And there's a, a wonderful scene after that where he's just kind of shaken by what he's done. And um, one of my favorite films is Gross Point Blank. And uh, he's... I think he even sort of mentions along the lines of, like, this is going to be my last one. Like, I, I, I can't do this anymore. I've I've been hunting replicants for God knows how long, and this just I shot a woman in the back, and she went through a glass, a series of glass panes, and the fact that she was wearing this ridiculous, um, clear plastic raincoat to really make her look more vulnerable, and even you know even though she was freakishly strong, and he does have a vulnerability about him at that point. He knows he's doing the wrong thing. Whether he's human or replicant, and we'll talk about that later. Like it, it's re- regardless, he's becoming more clear, especially with the Nexus Six uh, in, implanted memories. It's too uncomfortable for him to do. So at least that is him moving in the right direction. Mm. I would Batty, also make a small case for the ending, though. Like I mean, just because he was so mean and such a bully to Rachel in the scene mm. that we see him in before he goes to confront Pris. Well, he doesn't go to confront Pris, but that's what the, that's what in the end happens. But uh, but when he comes back, he doesn't try to, I don't know, sleep with her. He just like kind of in the, the it's almost framed in a reverse shot. The way that we saw Roy 
lean down over Pris when she's dead and he kind of sweetly like kisses her because uh, he's mourning her but he doesn't know how to express it it's like he slowly pulls the sheet over we see him worry about Rachel and then he just sweetly kisses her awake and then asks her if she's ready to leave and he asks her instead of telling her because in the earlier scene he says say kiss me say kiss me and then in this in the set this next one he's going do you love me he's asking her which at least is a baby step in the right direction but anyway <laughs> we have to give him his little applause for that tiny step forwards maybe he learned something today uh but but yeah so so deckard is a poor hero for us and that's obviously intentional they, they've taken us through and and that's why people were sort of watching it and getting genuinely more uncomfortable because like they were expecting him to be like i mean raiders of the lost ark came out in 81 i believe didn't he just finish it he had just i think he had just finished shooting and on his audition he came with the hat on oh geez yeah it was 81 yeah. uh so you know they, they'd just seen him play han solo in star wars and then in empire and then indy in raiders so they were like oh my god a harrison ford movie this is gonna be kick-ass and he is not a guy you want to spend time with at all really he's you know he like the whole gumshoe side of thing and the detective side of thing i think is the most compelling part of deckard the whole um you know, using the uh, snake scale as uh, as a, a lead to actually get him uh, to Zora. It's kind of patchy as to how he does that. You know, he it, after messing around with that photograph like, over, and over, and over and over and over and over again. It's like, just use a mouse, dude. Um, they uh, obviously they didn't have mice in those days, and that was kind of the point. But it just seems like such a ridiculously imprecise way of uh, moving stuff around. But at the end of it, he Look finds where I'm out. Pointing. Look where I'm pointing. It's you know clearly Roy's there in the picture, and he knows that these uh, replicants live together. And he eventually goes, "Yes, it's Zora. We know it's Zora. You got a picture of Zora." It's that, that that's not uncovering hmm. evidence. Like the scale is where it's at. You find out where that thing comes from, and then you can trace that. That's where the actual detective work comes. In. Yeah, that's about the only bit of detective work he probably yeah. really does. Yeah, really. That's the only thing that sort of ties him up with someone who actually, you know, the the whole like infiltrating Zora with this uh, um, uh, pretense of being working for a union. That was, uh, I, I believe, like uh, Marlowe in The Big Sleep, where he pretends to be an art dealer. Yeah. Um, but uh, I saw that in a, a video again. A credit where credit's due. A, a good comparison, but. Again, he's being a weasel there. That's not massively compelling. Yeah, a lot but, of it is the fact that... I don't know whether... See, personally, from my point of view, I've always felt when you watch Blade Runner, it's a story that's been flipped. You're following the villain, not the hero. Yeah. And I don't know whether really he's got intended that or he just wanted to have an unsympathetic hero, which is an incredibly hard thing to pull off. Yeah. And, well, if uh, you ever see them interviewed, it's kind of funny. I mean, because... Harrison Ford and Rudger Hauer have absolutely the opposite experience when they when they say, you know, how they felt during the shooting of the film. Like Rudger Hauer is like, oh yeah, and like Ridley, uh, or excuse me, <laughs> Ridley um, made me feel so uh, free. You know, I I really felt like I could make creative, <laughs> I could make creative decisions, and and oh my god, I'm so proud of it, and I got to write that ending scene, you know, and he loved it, and we used it, and then Harrison Ford's like. Oh, it was okay. Really, Scott's mean. Like, you know, just totally <laughs> different. 
So, so yeah, with with Roy, he's been doing horrible villainous things the whole way through, and Deckard's been shooting people, and uh, Rachel ends up, you know, joining him on this um, murderous. <laughs> um, rampage like she shoots Leon another replicant in the head and then goes through this terrible existential crisis and when she's at her most delicate point when she's um, you know wondering whether she could even go on he grabs her and says I want sex yeah, we you're get- gonna give it to me and not only that you're gonna tell me you want it and it's a loathsome and repugnant scene and it te- it's a bucket of ice cold water to my face every time I watch this movie yeah Rapey, and- Rapey Deckard is very horrible and it's one yeah. of you think I really do not like about this it, film it makes it worse that there's this Kenny G style uh, <laughs> Van Gallis music um, uh, Blade Runner Blues <laughs> Isn't this hot, guys? Isn't it romantic? No, it's fucking not. It's skin crawling. In my head, that's because Vangelis watched that scene and went, you are not putting any of my music on that. Mm. <laughs> I'm not putting my A-game for that scene. No. We're hitting on the, the, the problem section here because this basically, uh, like, the first two acts are great. And then when it hits the beginning of the third act, it slumps because the trail goes cold. Effectively, Rachel and Deckard are in like a real crisis at this point, both of them, uh, uh, emotionally speaking. And were they able to express that in a light conversation that has greater depth and meaning below what they're saying, it would have been a great touching scene. But it's really heavy-handed. He grabs at her, and then they never speak again until the very end, and then they exchange a couple of words and leave. That's it. That is the culmination of their relationship. The rest is unspoken. Effectively, I think what... what felt so uncomfortable for me is the fact that you've got these two people here who whose identity is sitting on a knife edge at this point Mm. they're both trying to work out who they are why they are who has control of them and what they do do they have control do they get to make their own decisions and their own choices and I, I have every sympathy for the fact that Deckard is in that same position as Rachel is right now But he basically goes, my identity and my identity crisis are way more important than yours. In fact, he doesn't even seem to recognize hers. Now, whether that's because he's a man and she's a woman, whether it's because he's a human and she's a replicant, I don't know. But either way, he's a pig, whatever it is. Yeah, he's a pig, whatever it is. And it it just, it, it doesn't, it's not that it doesn't fit with the story so far and that's the problem if it happened and then the consequences that came out of it felt realistic and natural e.g. Rachel goes fuck off I don't want to have anything to do with you ever again as yes. if you should have done that as opposed to this is how you make a girl fall in love with you yeah, you exactly. rape her but no what happens is that fucking Kenny G saxophone sets it up as this remarkably romantic touching love story and, and then he not. comes and finds her later under the sheet and rescues her from this terrible isolation and she wakes up and, and goes oh thank god I thought you were dead absolutely and I was going to be really you know, lonely unicorn off into the sunset together fuck right off okay but this uh, it also ties in with the uh, the fact that the he has failed effectively as a detective here he has to have the that he has to have it phoned into him so that he can turn up at the next appropriate scene. M. Emmett Walsh calls him on the radio while he's driving in his car and goes, yeah, you better get over to the Bradbury because uh, they, uh, we, we found uh, 
Yeah, Sebastian. And he lives in this place, so go there, because we, we, we sense a climax is impending. Hmm. And it's like, that's the next part of the trail, but he had to have it handed to him, illustrating what a shit detective he is, and how all of this stuff has effectively been for nothing. They've, they've just murdered two replicants of the four, and then he goes in and murders uh, another of them. And, you know, he's doing his job. He's being a, 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 a scumbag. But at this stage, like once he's in, it picks back up again. And once Roy starts going, it's really disarming the way Roy suddenly becomes feral and goes back to a uh, the, the, uh, the, the primitive lizard brain, like, you know, running around in his undies and howling like a wolf. That's really arresting filming. It, it becomes really tense. But if you go back to the actual... Um, sex scene in real life it was horribly uncomfortable for Sean Young it was horribly uncomfortable for Harrison Ford but he was having to grab her and smush her up against him and like grab her legs and like thrust himself up against her and she kept like stopping and laughing because she was so uncomfortable and it felt so awkward and you know ladies in 1982 do you want to kiss Harrison Ford yes please but when you got Ridley Scott glaring at you from behind a camera lens and going what's the problem just kiss yeah, it actually, and this is a really horrible, unfair comparison, but I'm going to make it anyway, reminds me of The Room. I Tommy Wiseau exactly goes in there and that. goes, right, you're uh, not equipped uh, emotionally uh, and you haven't been prepared uh, and you don't have the chemistry with your co-lead for this scene. Fuck it, we're doing it anyway, because I want it. And ultimately, one of the best films ever made by many people's standards, one of the worst films ever made by many people's standards, uh, but both of them have this dreadfully uncomfortable out-of-place sex scene, which ultimately is a hindrance to the film. He knows he made a, he made a mistake. I mean, he Ridley Scott said this is, I think, the least effective scene in the film, and I said, well, you're goddamn right. <laughs> That's right. Apparently Harrison tried to make a, uh, Sean feel at ease by mooning her from the yes. other side of the oh, room. That was because she started crying afterwards. Oh, yes. He was, um, he was trying to cheer her up. Okay, okay, so don't cry, Sean. Look at my ass. <laughs> I've, I've got this. Do you like it? Uh, yeah, to that's lovely, fair, Harrison. That's Thank you. Effect, that seems having on your actors. That should be a great big old red flag that the scene isn't working oh. or worth it. Okay. Well, I won't keep going on about it. I think our, our, my point on this one was made. By all means, you guys can if you want to add some to it. But um, no, it, it is the, that's the it, biggest problem. Like I said, I, this is. I, don't, I think I've said this before in previous shows. This is my favourite film of all time, and yeah. I hate this scene. It's horrible. <laughs> it is an albatross around the neck of this film. Yeah. Um, the funny thing is that in this movie, they went out of their way to make Deckard more likable than he is in the book. Because there's a whole relationship with his wife where he's trying... They didn't bring this into the film, but at one point they have a like an emotion setter where you can you can dial somebody's emotions back or like to a certain feeling like happiness or I feel horny all the time. Guess what setting he always set his wife to? And like he would do that in the book and... Is his wife human? <laughs> yeah, you the humans could do it too. Yeah, oh. the, the book's a lot more messed up. And put it this way: if Deckard in the film is a scumbag, he's he's ten times worse in the book. He is. He is. <laughs> But 
yeah, as you say, Neil, that you've been following the hero all along. He's just been doing these horrible, brutal things. He's the thinker, that's Roy. He's the one who ultimately decides in his last fleeting moments of life, even though he's been uh, trying to uh, enact wrath and vengeance, uh, they castle, they cross over, and, um, you know, Deckard is left helpless and unable to commit the final wrathful act, um, in- entirely incapable. And Roy. The reason he saves him at this last moment is that in his last gasp, he's beginning to really appreciate life and he needs to cherish it and he needs to pass something of himself on. And it just, he finds it distasteful at the last moment. It's that whole climax where he's, you, you called it, he's using the lizard brain. It's because it's high functions of shut down to this point where he, when he's jumped across the, the the rooftop he's had the revelation he's grown he's evolved to be more than what he is that's why he saves Deckard like you said he's he's realised that no I'm not going to do that that is distasteful he saves Deckard imparts he gives the speech and then ends but he's he's had the revelation he's he's grown which is something he's as a uh, as a replicant he was never meant to do he's be- he literally in that scene in the moment of his death he does become more human than human almost and you write about the the swapping roles as well. Um, one of the things that the the Greek myth analogy kind of kept me thinking about was, it, but if this is the case in all of this, who is Deckard? Where does he fit in with that? I couldn't think of a, a, a decent parallel. He's man. Mm. Prometheus, part of, of, of what Prometheus does that pisses off the gods so much is create man, and he gets Athena to breathe life into them for him. Um, and um, and and that effectively is is Roy does at the end what humans in creating replicants could not. Mm. He hands his life off to Deckard and says, "You, I stop here, you go on." Which makes Deckard more receptive when um, uh, Edward James almost character turns up and delivers the. the basically the knowing wink of hey i know where she is i know what you've got to do go do this yeah and it it, it gets deckard's brain to change change track and become something more than what he was and the yin and yang too bad she won't live but then again who does i think yeah you're right neil he's urging him to go out there and live get out of this disgusting city and the and the yin and yang but I, i love the dichotomy there i think that's uh pretty telling because deckard's right at the crux of of light and dark at that moment he's he's literally on the edge and uh i mean i think that's why the title is much more suited you know than do androids dream of electric sheep it's all about skating the edge is there an artist uh greek god that you can think of because that's how gaff is defined he you know he is effectively philosophizing with Descartes at the end as well uh, and he creates a little chicken when um uh, Descartes doesn't want to take the job uh, in, with his origami, then he creates a little man when Deckard's doing the actual detective work with a dick to yep. say, "Look at this! You're doing the big man's dick work." And then at the end, he makes the little unicorn, uh, which can be taken in a number of different ways. We'll talk about that in just a second when we're regarding uh, whether Deckard's a replicant or not. Nope. Okay, we'll come back to that. Nothing that's springing to mind. The the only thing I can, the only one I can think of is Apollo, maybe. Hmm. Okay. Uh, the is Deckard a replicant thing is very contentious. The original screenwriters, when they were uh, putting the film together, they pretty much finished the script, and then uh, one of them said to the other, oh, I see, like the little origami uh, unicorn. You mean uh, that Deckard's a replicant? 
And the first one was like, no, that's about Rachel. And then the the, the other guy was like, no, 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 I, like, you, you've just blown my mind. He's been a replicant all along. So that's what I have a problem with. They wrote the whole thing, they finished it, and then one of them, but not both of them, read into it that parallel. And then they... Then Ridley Scott found out about it, loved the idea. That um, unicorn bit, a lot of people have attributed that to being B-roll from Legend. Uh, apparently not. It was um, like, you know, after they'd filmed you know, Blade Runner, he went and like got somebody's horse out into an estate and filmed it early in the morning with the unicorn horn. I was like, I'm going to stick that in there to then like to, to, to give context to that unicorn um, paper uh, origami model that is given to him by Gaff uh, to effectively state to the audience that this is a dream that they are aware androids how replicants have that you must dream of unicorns, ergo you must be a replicant, and that, that he is signifying to him. It's a very, again, heavy-handed, blunt kind of, you know, this is what they're doing. The cops the whole way through have been manipulating the shit out of everything to the point where it's like, you mean you could have basically have gotten a SWAT team to take these guys out at any time? JF, Sebastian, and Tyrell could have lived? Not well, at any time. Only when it was funny. They have an alarming amount of oversight regarding what seems to be going on, and they won't tell him. And if he is a replicant, that makes it even worse. So, do you guys want to talk about what him being a replicant actually means when you look back on the rest of the film? I think it's utterly baffling that they thought they needed it because the blending of humans and replicants was already there. The story didn't need it because I know that was the point. Like, replicants are humans and we shouldn't be thinking of them as machines. But And so that happened. I don't think you need... You didn't need your main character then to then already all of a sudden be a replicant. And not to go back to the book again, but by the way, that's not in there anywhere. Not at all, at yeah. All. No, no I, I, I like the ambiguity better, as in he could, he couldn't be. It's entirely up to how you interpreted it. It's, I don't think you need the Again, the heavy hand of saying he is is a bit dumb, but hey, now Ridley Scott says, I'm the director. Mm. There's a matter of practicality as well. Uh, in the um, he, he, first off, this is another one of the problems. He gets told about the Nexus Six, and they they, they bring him on and pretty much explain what replicants are like to him. It's kind of like me getting a guitar teacher along and trying to explain what F chord is to a guitar teacher. He's the specialist. He's the guy who tells you the cops about replicants. It should have been the other way round. But no, he gets told uh, stuff by Tyrone. He's like. You're talking about memories. And it's like they're finally now putting memories and implanting them into the Nexus 6 units. And so Rachel is relatively young and, and they've been trialing this with them to, to give them a sense of, uh, of weight to their lives. So the question then becomes, how long has uh, Deckard been doing this? And did they implant memories in him way back then and then stop doing it? And now they've started again? I've always just taken that that, they're that he's not encountered a Nexus 6 before. Everything else was probably more primitive and probably yeah. easier to find you know so, especially yeah, like the difference between what is it the t500s and the t800s in terminator yeah. so it'd, it'd be like uh, somebody explaining to the t101 about the t1000 rather than the other way around hmm. so this thing can can it make guns and turn itself into a bomb and maybe blow john connor up no because uh, uh bombs have uh moving poles moving parts 
oh, okay, that makes sense. Knives and stabbing so weapons. so much better the other way around. Yeah. Knives and stabbing weapons. Well, and if you're going to um, have if you're gonna have a replicant... Okay, so if Deckard is a replicant, then he's a shit replicant. Like, you have to... If you're going to have <laughs> someone get the crap beat out of them, the entire film, someone who's almost basically inept at doing anything beyond raping women, which is horrible... And shooting women in the back. Don't forget shooting, that. Shooting women in the back. It's like you also have to lying to women. It needs lying it needs to women, to spying on women, on creeping around women's homes. Yeah, like it needed to be a part of the story. Like, because in that regard, the only way to think of him as a replicant is well, there's some sadistic experiment that he's a part. Of. They wanted someone to. They wanted to just create a replicant to see how human they could be or something. And then just before it's about to die, they go, guess what? You're a replicant and you've been killing replicants. What do you think of that? Humans are shit. No, he he has to be human. (laughs) He's too shit to be a replicant. Also, when I sat there and I've just worked something really bad out in my head, and correct me if I'm wrong, he really only kills Zora and Pris. I know. Yep. Yep. It takes Rachel to kill the big muscular healer guy. Rachel kills Leon and Roy effectively just dies. Expires. Yeah. yeah. There were a lot, a lot of people were like, oh, they say at the beginning, six Nexus 6 units escaped. Four are named. Two got, and then in uh, quotation marks, fried. That's Rachel and Deckard. He had false memories of him being a Blade Runner implanted for years, and like he, like this is his first day on the street, and he thinks he's been doing it for years. That's that's a shit story. That's a lot less good than the actual story that he's just a human who's tired of doing his job. That also requires the entirety of LA to have been bribed to pretend they know him. That, by the way, <laughs> is warping the existing story in service of a 11th hour twist which wasn't even the authorial intention the whole way through I have to shut my brain off from it when I watch it I just I take it as a like a surreal just like Kubrickian metaphor that's that's the only way I can mm. even accept it you know mm. yeah um uh, Honestly, I, I'm not like one of those. I, I, he must be human, or he must be a replicant. Uh, people, I like the ambiguity. By yeah. all accounts, Blade Runner 2049 is very, very good. Um, you know, if if Scott says he's a replicant, then he'll be an old ass replicant who didn't have the uh, the three four year yeah. uh, lifespan. Yeah, that's the other in, thing that I suppose that would make no sense because I'm sure Tyros says they haven't got past the whole four year lifespan problem anyway. So. Yeah. Well, uh, there's a lot of hand-wavy George Lucas-style stuff going on here, but from the sounds of it, it hasn't ruined the sequel. The sequel. It doesn't even feel like a sequel yet, but we'll see. We'll see. Uh, we won't be reviewing that now, but uh, we will come back to it definitely at some stage. Was I'm he just... lying? When, was he lying when he said that we made you as good as we could make you? Like, or what, what was that meant to imply? That they... I wasn't sure if I was supposed to read that as they literally only can live four years. Was that Tyrell saying it to Roy Batty? Yeah. A a, a replicant just about to gouge his eyes out. He'd say anything to stay alive. I don't know. You're my prodigal son. You can't kill me. I'm your papa. I've always taken that scene as he is painfully honest with him. Yeah. I've always taken it that Tyrell's painfully honest with him, regardless of the consequences. Yeah, which thus means that that's clutching at straws if you're like, ah, well, yes, then they... But that's yeah. that's why like, me and you like the ambiguity of it all, because it gives you yeah. these different routes to think about. Yeah. I don't mind the unicorn. Uh, I don't mind the unicorn dream, and ultimately, um, 
it, it could be read in, in many ways as simply uh, Deckard reckoning on this weird rarity of a replicant that feels to the point where he didn't really know she was uh, a replicant. It took him a hundred questions. There is another thing, like uh, uh, Scott points to the whole, oh, there, there's a, a bit where uh, Deckard has kind of glowy eyes at that one stage when he's talking to Rachel, and that proves that he's a replicant. But that whole thing falls down when Deckard sits in front of Rachel for a hundred questions, and her eyes are doing that the whole time, and he doesn't go, well, you're a replicant, obviously. How do you know? The eyes. Uh, the, 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 the eyes thing is just a fun little reflective effect he, that he found that he could do when he uh, played with the light, and he used it. I don't think he originally intended for Deckard to get... Um, like it, It's not filmed with Deckard being the replicant in mind, not the whole way through. But... <sighs> yeah. Minefield. <sighs> yeah, I know. This is it, it is better as a story if... The one that shows the more humanity is the one that was a replicant, and the one that is very wayward is humanity itself, a fragile figure. Ultimately, we can still find humanity in creatures that aren't human. We can find it in tigers and dwarves and dragons and uh, apes and its candlesticks. It's wonderful to be able to see ourselves in other things. We have puppies and kittens and their behavior reminds us of ourselves reminds us of children we look for these comparisons and that to me is cherishing life and looking for those connections that's some of the the best parts of being alive is is reckoning on that and and examining the human condition through allegory and and through metaphorical characters yeah I think and that it's good getting that they, hung up on specifics that he's a replicant misses that point. Yeah, I, I think that the I think something that people latch on to is that the animals have that in their eye, the artificial animals. And so they link them together. But you're, I, I like the ambiguity of the eye stuff for sure. It's I think the the movie would be so much weaker if the message was, yeah, take what you see at face value. I, I don't mm. think that would be a very interesting film at all and not certainly not what philip k dick had in mind when he wrote the novel he did apparently really like the film when he, he saw the actual uh, effects finally on screen he was like he was very impressed yeah he, how did you get into my brain and pull this stuff out which is the greatest compliment that filmmakers can receive yeah the joys about this film again not just the ambiguity aside it's just the fact there's so much to discover in there and to think on and ponder on because it's not your typical sci-fi fair of the time it's a much more thoughtful piece it's essentially a film about an, ex an existential crisis of who am i and it deals with different different characters deal with different aspects of that question and i just you know musically visually uh performance wise it's a stunning film and it just blows my mind still to this day i get why i can understand why because from a, an audience point of view the ending is so unsatisfying because there is no final confrontation the final confrontation is just roy batty's speech and where it's like the first time i saw it I went hang on he's the good guy then hmm. it's, it's internal the final confrontation is within roy yeah, and yeah. 
we're at the point, you know, in the 80s where that's not what audience wanted. I think it, it for me feels like there's there's almost two kinds of sci-fi. There's the one that says, could we do this in the future? And then there's the kind that says, should we do this in the future? Hmm. And this is definitely the latter. I also find it very, very interesting because Blade Runner, the replicants, like I said, aren't androids. They're, they're genetically engineered humans, which mm. is something we would do now in sci-fi. Um, well, you know, we had, what was it? We've had films that recently that have dealt with that. But for the 80s, a lot of the time, it was Cameron and robots or aliens. You know, here we're dealing with the consequences of our own actions. I just, I love that. I, I, I genuinely love this film and it is honestly my favorite film of all time. But Lord of the Rings, I mean, for me, like Blade Runner, will live forever because um, I believe Sharon is who brought up Lord of the Rings earlier. Um, I think she's totally right where part of what made all of the CG creations, and I'm specifically talking about the first three, not The Hobbit, uh, specifically what made everything really work that wasn't actually there was that there was a foundation of real actors and real things that were happening, and then they built upon that to create a world that isn't our own, but that we could live in. And I think that that's my favorite thing about Blade Runner, is that at the end of the day, yes, it's one of my favorite films of all time, but not necessarily, it's, that's not necessarily because the story is so great and so engaging. Sometimes I just want to escape. And Blade Runner, for me, is a way to travel, as is the Lord of the Rings trilogy you some of these films that have these realistic effects and these people in them that can be sitting right next to you they will live on regardless of whether their story is perfectly crafted like Tolkien or well crafted but a little bit lofty like the script of Blade Runner There's a whole half hour worth of deleted material which will be on the Patreon for everyone at our $5 level. That's uh, one of our cutting class shows, which is everything that didn't make the final cut. It was released in a theatrical edition, but that was back in 1982, didn't see it. But uh, the final cut, this, this is the best one of this podcast. See what I did there. Other cutting class shows with behind-the-scenes chat include The Room, To the Moon, Stranger Things, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, Doctor Strange, Legend of Zelda, The Nintendo Show, Lego Batman, Hamilton, The Lion King, The Hobbit, Robin Hood, Flight of Dragons, Kung Fu Panda, and three from The Force Awakens. And those are all accessible if you're at the $5 level. But if you're at the $15 level, you can enjoy Pride of Place as the top-tier contributors, the ones who really form the backbone of our Patreon. And this month, those include Joel Robinson, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicol, Abel Savard, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia-Abril, Ben Hayes, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. Thank you all. 
If you were hanging from a rooftop, I would totally save you. Okay, so uh, where can people see your work, uh, Neil? Oh, you can find me over on YouTube.com at uh, YouTube.com forward slash The Kid Dog. And uh, have you done stuff uh, recently? I haven't done anything recently. I'm getting back into the okay. swing. It's just mainly because summertime is busy time at work. So. Understandable. Okay. Uh, and uh, Colin? Uh, I am a co-host on the Cinema Cephalopod. Uh, that's going to be found on SoundCloud. We are extremely infrequent right now in terms of when we put videos or, excuse me, uh, recordings up. But uh, I hope that that changes and turns around in the near future. It's kind of like what Neil was saying. It's just an extremely taxing time uh, for me schedule wise. Uh, But you can follow me on Twitter. Um, It was uh, at the cinema Cepha, C-E-P-H-A-1. Uh, that was the only thing available. Um, but yeah, follow me on Twitter. And in uh, response to your uh, uh, to what you said earlier, you know, of me not getting to say much, uh, I'm an avid listener of your podcast, and it was a pleasure to be on. So thank you for having thank me. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure to have you. Okay, so next week we have Northern Lights, the uh, Golden Compass, and it is a comparison between the book, which is one of the most important books of all time to us and the film which is one of the most frustrating films of all time to us so it's gonna it's gonna get epic and long and passionate and emotional looking forward to you guys hearing that and uh after that one we're doing Coraline something (laughs) dark and mysterious and fun and colorful and beautiful and slightly more Halloween-y I have been Alex Shaw I've been Sharon Shaw and school's out I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shore of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the ten house gates. All those moments. Time like tears.
Until tomorrow. 